I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. So spoke Martin Luther King in 1963 in a civil rights speech outside the Lincoln Memorial in America. And the dream that he described changed people's lives. It changed how they thought and how they acted. It motivated them to work towards that dream becoming a reality. It gave them hope in what seemed to be a hopeless situation. It even gave them the courage to endure ridicule and insult, beating and even death until that dream became a reality. Today we continue with our series through the book of Revelation and in the passage that we're going to look at today, the Apostle John does not merely have a dream, something out of his own imagination or desire, but rather a vision. As we saw last time, in the book of Revelation, God draws back the curtain and allows John to see things as they really are. And like Martin Luther King's dream, John's vision changes his life and changes the lives of his readers. It's a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so significant that in a book that contains so many strange pictures and imagery, things that perplex and disturb us, the very first thing that John sees is Jesus. This is the guiding vision for the rest of the book. Let's have a look. Revelation chapter 1 and verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. 
His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. As always, there's so much that we could look at in these verses, but we'll begin by looking at the context for this vision. I'll then give a brief note on the symbolism in the book of Revelation. We'll then look at what John saw, how he responded, and what this means for us today. So firstly, the context for this vision. In verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering, literally tribulation, and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Notice two things that are true of John and his readers. They are in Jesus and they are in tribulation. Because John is a pastor and one of the main leaders of these churches in Asia, the authorities have banished him to an island 40 miles away so that he can no longer be an influence on the church. And John is deeply concerned for his congregations. A man called Antipas, who was a member of the church in Pergamum, has already been killed for his faith, and John knows that there is worse to come. How will the churches cope? How will they even survive? He longs to be there to help and encourage and comfort them. Did you notice that the words suffering and kingdom are right next to each other in this verse. You may remember that when we studied the book of 1 Peter, the main theme of the book was after suffering glory. John has a slightly different emphasis here, namely in suffering glory. George Caird says this in his commentary on this passage, in his gospel, John does not think of the suffering of Christ as the prelude to kingly glory. Rather, Christ reigns from the cross. So too for Christ's followers. Suffering and kingdom are obverse and reverse of the one calling. For those who endure with Christ also reign with him and reign in the very midst of their ordeal. We'll look more at the nature of this suffering in weeks to come, but there is suffering that comes when I give up my will, my desires, my natural inclinations to obey Jesus. Following him costs me. 
There is also suffering that comes from living in a fallen world. And there is particular suffering that comes to us from those who reject and resist the reign of God in their lives. They cannot get at God, but they can get at us as his followers. And so they persecute us and say all sorts of untrue things about us, and even in some cases put us to death. And what are we to do in this situation? Well, John calls us to patient endurance. The word that he uses here is not a passive one. He's not calling us to hopeless resignation, but rather active service. Think of an athlete and his or her endurance. John is calling us to steadfastness. But John's steadfastness did not come from his own effort, from gritting his teeth and persevering. It came from a fresh picture of Jesus. From verse 10, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw. Before we look at what John saw, let me give you a brief note on symbolism in the book of Revelation. As we saw last time, the visions in this book are symbolic, not photographic. John uses symbols because he's trying to describe the indescribable. He also uses symbols because he's describing things like the evil of emperor worship and the destruction of the Roman Empire, and it would have been dangerous for him to write that in plain language. Because the writing is symbolic, it's very similar to poetry, which has another function, as Eugene Peterson puts it in his book. He says, by the time we get to this last book, we already have a complete revelation of God before us. Everything that has to do with our salvation, with accompanying instructions on how to live a life of faith, is here in full. There is nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. I read the revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. There is a danger that through familiarity and fatigue, we will not pay attention to the splendors that surround us in the other books of the Bible. John takes the familiar words and by arranging them in unexpected rhythms, wakes us up so that we see the revelation of Jesus Christ entire as if for the first time. John is a poet using words to intensify our relationship with God. He will jar us out of our lethargy, get us to live on the alert, open our eyes to the burning bush and fiery chariots, open our ears to the hard steel promises and commands of Christ, banish boredom from the gospel, lift up our heads, enlarge our hearts. It's also important to see that the symbols in the book of Revelation come to us from the Old Testament, especially from books like Ezekiel and Daniel, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Isaiah and Exodus. 
but just about every book in the Old Testament is referenced. Eugene Peterson estimates that in the 404 verses in Revelation, we probably have 518 references to earlier scripture, so that he can say, no one has any business reading the last book who has not read the previous 65. It makes no more sense to read the last book of the Bible apart from the entire scriptures than it does to read the last chapter of any novel, skipping everything before it. Much mischief has been done by reading the Revelation in isolation from its canonical context. And then finally, when it comes to symbolism, it's important to see that sometimes the book of Revelation explains the symbols for us. So verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I'm sure that you've seen pictures or paintings where the artist has tried to capture a literal picture of what John describes here in chapter 1. And such pictures are disturbing and frightening and probably off-putting. But let me quote our dear friend Ellis Andre in this regard. I found his words so comforting. He says, if we were to see Jesus today, he would probably not look like this. What we have here is symbolic rather than pictorial. Every feature of this appearance conveys something to John and to those to whom he will report this vision. And every feature is a valid portrayal of who Jesus is for us today. So having looked at the context and noting a few things about symbolism, let's move on and look at what John saw. Verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. The imagery comes from the seven-branched menorah in the temple, and from Zechariah's vision of a lampstand with seven lights. But here, as we're told, The lampstands are the seven churches to whom John is writing. How comforting for these believers who are about to face persecution to know that Christ is not an absentee God, but is among them. Verse 13, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. This title, Son of Man, can just mean ordinary human being. Uh, God speaks to Ezekiel uh, and several times addresses him as son of man. It's a similar title to the one that you have in the Narnia books by C.S. Lewis, where the talking animals call the human beings sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. You'll know that Jesus used the title the Son of Man, to refer to himself. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, 
Mark 8. He also spoke about the Son of Man's glorious return, his return. All nations will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of the sky, with power and great glory, Matthew 24. And at his trial, Jesus said to the religious leaders, I am the Christ, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven, Mark 14, which they regarded as blasphemy and therefore sentenced him to death. You see, in calling himself the Son of Man, Jesus was deliberately taking a title that we find in Daniel chapter 7. There, Daniel has a vision of someone who looks like an ordinary human being, but who is given the authority and glory and power of God himself. Listen to what Daniel says. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that is God himself, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. One Bible commentator points out then that the title, The Son of Man, is just about the most pretentious title anyone could use, unless it were true. And did you notice then the amazing contrast between the words of Jesus in the title he gives himself and the context in which those words were spoken? Because the Son of Man eats with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. The Son of Man seeks for those who are lost. The Son of Man suffers many things and is rejected and ultimately killed. In the words of the song by Graham Kendrick, meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God, Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility and washes our feet. Oh, what a mystery! Meekness and majesty, bow down and worship, for this is your God. So this was the figure that John saw, and then John goes on to try and describe the figure. You will notice that John uses the word like a lot, because he really is trying to describe what is indescribable. This was also Ezekiel's uh, predicament when he tried to describe his vision of God. He ends up by saying, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down. But John says in verse 13 that this figure was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet. The word that is used here refers to the robe of the high priest. And Jesus is our high priest, the mediator between God and man, because in his one person he combines both. 
The writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 1 that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And in chapter 2, that he was made like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. John goes on to say in verse 13 that he had a golden sash around his chest. Most people who wore robes had a belt or sash around their waist so that they could tuck up the hem of their garment when they needed to do some kind of physical work. But Christ wears a sash high around his chest to show that his work on our behalf is complete. John tells us in verse 14 that his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. It's significant that in Daniel's vision, it is the Ancient of Days, God himself, who is said to have hair as white as wool. Perhaps those of you who are elderly may be encouraged to know that God himself has white hair, which speaks not about the age of God, but his eternity his wisdom, his purity. John goes on in verse 14 to say that his eyes were like blazing fire. Oh, what it must have been like for John to look at those eyes, or rather to have those eyes look at him, look into him, see to the very bottom of him. Eugene Peterson points out that a host of biblical images accumulate in the flaming eyes of the Son of Man. Pillar of fire, burning bush, altar fires, fiery chariots. Our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews chapter 12. John goes on in verse 15 to say, His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. This vision has already made us think of the book of Daniel, and perhaps you may recall the vision that King Nebuchadnezzar has in Daniel chapter 2 of a huge statue with a head of gold and chest of silver, thighs of bronze, legs of iron, representing the kingdoms of the world. And we're told that while the statue looked so impressive and stable, its feet were partly of iron and partly of baked clay, so that when a huge rock not cut out by human hands, struck the feet of the statue, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff. The winds swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel tells the king and us that his dream means that in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. And unlike the feet of that impressive statue, the feet of Jesus are stable and strong because they have been through fire. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. That will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. John tells us next in verse 15 that his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. 
Patmos is a very noisy island. John would have been constantly aware of the noise of the waves beating against the cliffs. But the voice of Jesus thunders even louder and drowns them out. It's like Niagara or Victoria Falls, a thunderous, awesome roar. John tells us in verse 16 that in his right hand he held seven stars. In verse 20 we're told that these are the seven angels of the seven churches. The word literally means messengers, and we're not sure then if this refers to human messengers, the leaders or pastors of the seven churches, or whether this refers to angelic beings who are involved in the churches. Uh, one commentator suggests that this is John simply describing the church from two perspectives. Uh, the church is symbolized as an earthly reality by seven lampstands and as a heavenly reality by seven stars in the right hand of Christ. But notice that God's church and people are held, encompassed within the hand of Christ. John tells us further in verse 16 that out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. The voice and the words of God are powerful. In Hebrews chapter 4 we read, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must all give account. And finally, John tells us in verse 16, his face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Not something that is possible to look at for any length of time. Although this was an awesome sight, it was not something completely new to John. In Matthew chapter 17, we read how one day Jesus took with him Peter, James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. A bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Although Christ's deity was veiled in flesh, on a couple of occasions Jesus let the veil slip and the Godhead was seen. And so John begins his gospel by saying, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Peter says in his second letter, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We've looked at the context for this vision and what John saw. Let's look next at John's response. It's so interesting that John had spent three years of his life with Jesus, up close and personal. In his letter that we call First John, he says, That which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. 
John was the one who'd leaned back against Jesus as they lay at the Last Supper so that he could whisper a question into Jesus's ear. He'd been that close. But now when he sees his friend in all his glory, he falls at his feet as though he was dead. It was exactly Ezekiel's response when he saw God and the disciples' response when they saw Jesus's glory on the mountain. And what was the counter response? What does Jesus do when John falls at his feet? Well, firstly, John says in verse 17 that he placed his right hand on me. Because the earlier verses are symbolic, we don't need to think in terms of Jesus first having to put down the seven stars before he can put his hand on John. The Scottish Bible commentator, William Barclay, makes this wonderful observation, though. The very same hand which holds the stars is placed in soothing comfort on the head and the shoulder of the frightened child. The hand of Christ is strong enough to uphold the heavens and gentle enough to wipe away our tears. But then Jesus also speaks, verse 17, Do not be afraid. Again, there's a wonderful reminiscence of the gospel story because there were several occasions when John had heard these very words from the lips of Jesus. On that mountain of transfiguration, we read that when the disciples saw Jesus and heard the voice, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. Or again, when Jesus revealed himself to his disciples as Yahweh, who treads the waves of the sea on Lake Galilee, he called to his disciples, take courage, I am, don't be afraid. The words, do not be afraid, in this context, apply not just to the vision that John has had, but to the whole situation in which John finds himself, exiled from his church, concerned about persecution. And no matter what situation we may be in today, sickness, sorrow, death, financial difficulties, difficulty in our work, our relationships, our marriage, our family, Jesus places his right hand on us and says, do not be afraid. And then he goes on to give us the basis for us not to fear. Verse 17, I am the first and the last. I am the beginning of everything. I am the end of everything, and I hold everything in between. Jesus goes on to say in verse 18, I am the living one. Throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as the living God. But of course, there's a particular significance to Jesus saying that he is the living one. Because as he says in verse 18, I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. What an encouragement to men and women who were facing horrible deaths by lions gladiators, wild dogs, fire and the sword. As Pastor John Stott puts it, because Christ is both the eternal one and the resurrected one, death has lost its terrors 
and we have every reason to rejoice and not be afraid. I see we've been going for just over 30 minutes now, and I do just briefly want to highlight four things I believe this passage means to us today. But perhaps before I do that, you could just pause this recording and think about all we've heard, the context for the vision, what John saw, how he responds, what Jesus says to him, and write down three things that this vision means for you. Welcome back. You can thank Philip Parsons for that idea. Let me briefly outline four things. Number one, Jesus is a lot bigger than we think. Of course he is our friend, our brother, our loving saviour. Of course he welcomes us into his presence, but sometimes our emphasis on his love and grace diminishes him and makes him smaller, more manageable. Dorothy Sayers was a British novelist, best known for her Lord Peter Whimsey mystery novels. She also wrote some non-fiction Christian books, and in her book, Letters to a Diminished Church, Passionate Arguments for the Relevance of Christian Doctrine, she wrote this. The people who hanged Christ on a cross never, to do them justice, accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have efficiently pared the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. End quote. We have to remember, in the words of C.S. Lewis, that Jesus is not a tame lion, and if he were to appear in our morning service or in our rooms or back garden while we're having our quiet time, if he were to appear in all his glory, we too would fall at his feet as though dead. Number two, Jesus is among us. Let me quote Ellis Andre here, because I still can. I mentioned last time that I have Ellis's sermon notes on the book of Revelation. Unfortunately, they only go up to the end of chapter 3, which is the easiest part of the book to interpret. After that, I'm on my own. But Ellis said this about Jesus being among us. It is one thing to affirm in theory the reality of his presence and another to conduct ourselves in the light of the fact that he is here. Too often we've left him in history or we imagine that he is far off somewhere. But by the presence of the Holy Spirit he is here. And if he is present, how foolish it would be to try to operate as if he were not. Number three, Jesus holds us. I was thinking this past week that if I were to look into the eyes of the Lord Jesus, I'm pretty sure that I would be obliterated if it were not for the fact that John also describes the hand of Jesus. His hand holds me. And they are the hands that bear the scars of his love for me his death on the cross for me. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10, 
My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus holds us and he is in complete control. And finally, number four, Jesus has something to say to us. To borrow the title from a book by Francis Schaeffer, he is there and he is not silent. We will see next time that each of the letters to the seven churches contains a part of the description that we have of Christ here. This vision forms the introduction to what Jesus has to say to the churches. In this vision, he speaks and says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. But in the weeks that lie ahead, he will have other things to say to us, things that will comfort and encourage us, and things that will challenge us, challenge us to the very heart. Remember, as we saw last time, that our task is to hear the words of this prophecy and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. May God richly bless you in the week that lies ahead. Amen.